Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. At the foundation of every relationship is the assumption of love. And there is nothing, nothing quite like the feeling of being in love. When you're in love, time seems to stand still and the world around you disappears into the background. When you're in love, all you can think about, all you want to talk about is the object of your affection. When you're in love, you don't, you'll tell anyone. You'll tell anyone who will listen about your relationship. When you're in love, you look forward to being together with that special someone and you struggle, right? You struggle as if a piece of you is missing when you are apart. Despite the chorus of that classic rock song, love is typically associated with nothing more than a feeling. Love is generally perceived as not being grounded in anything outside of one's emotions. And so we talk, right? We talk of loving someone until we don't feel any love for them anymore. As the flame of desire begins to flicker, as the initial excitement and joy in the relationship starts to wane, and what was once a consistent burning passion gradually dims, we speak of falling out of love. But is true love based on how we feel at any given moment, or is true love based on something more? As we continue our series on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, love is the theme of the day. Jesus, through the Apostle John, has a word for the church at Ephesus about love, specifically their love for him. And through this letter to the Ephesians, we are going to be reminded, we're going to be reminded of what true love is. We're going to be reminded that the foundation of every healthy relationship is more than the assumption of love, but rather is built upon our devotion to our first love, the love we have, the love we give back, the love we share, thanks to Jesus Christ. Here it is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's listen together. Hello, please join me in today's reading from Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For the past two weeks, we've been orienting ourselves to this singular cosmic vision that Jesus first gave to the Apostle John, a revelation that by Christ's design is intended for all generations of the church. The perspective we're offered by Jesus through John is again not a linear view of the progression of human history until the end of the world. No, 
It is rather a nonlinear glimpse behind the veil of eternity. It is a spectacular and at times mystifying picture of how, as it is in heaven, is inbreaking into earth, of how the inevitable and absolute future reign of the kingdom of God is already penetrating into the present. And the overarching message being conveyed by way of this point of view is that things are not what they seem. Despite the way things look to us on earth at any given moment in time, the eternal reality that Christ has overcome all that ultimately threatens us, that Christ has overcome sin, evil, and even death itself remains unchanged. So what we are witnessing is not a death, the world going to hell in a handbasket. No, in all the chaos, pain, and suffering since the day of Christ's resurrection until the day of Christ's return, what we are seeing, what we are experiencing are the ongoing pangs of a new birth. The gradual, laborious, laborious transformation of the human condition. The groans of creation's redemption. All the forces that continue to oppose God and Christ are fighting a losing battle. They have been, they continue to be, and in the end they will be eclipsed by a grace that is greater than our sin. By a hope that is more powerful than evil. By a love that is stronger than death. This is the message for the church for all time, but it was a particularly needed word for the first generations of Christians, followers of Jesus who were facing continued alienation and great persecution for living out of the faith of the gospel. And it is into the midst of this prolonged season of division and suffering that Jesus appears and speaks to John. The first centering image John beholds is that of the risen, glorified Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, walking among seven lampstands. The image of those seven lampstands John is immediately told to associate with the church, particularly the seven churches in Asia Minor. These seven churches were actual physical congregations in existence when John recorded these words that Jesus dictated to him. Located on the west side of Asia Minor, what is now known as the nation of Turkey, these seven churches formed a V pattern that started on the coast of the Aegean Sea and progressively moved further inland. Now, there were many other churches. It's important to know this. There were many other churches in the province of Asia at that time. A few of them were even more well-known, like, say, the Corinthian church, than some of the seven churches Jesus addresses in these letters. But these seven were specifically chosen because they represent and reflect both strengths and growth edges of the church throughout its entire history. Not just these churches, but the church from our beginning to our end. And as the light of Christ shines on each church, Jesus reveals all truth. The truth of the life and witness of each congregation, of who they are becoming as works in progress, of where they are leaning into and abiding in Christ, and where they have become disoriented from Jesus where they have fallen back into the habit of going their own way rather than following Christ. And the contents of the first letter we just heard read establish the pattern for the other six. With each evaluation we'll discover, Jesus begins with an affirmation of the church, then moves to a diagnosis of a particular problem, but always closes with a prescription for the church's recovery that includes a promise of healing. The first letter that we're considering today was written to the church in the city of Ephesus. Now, if we were to look at a map, if we were to take out a map and look at it, the Ephesian church was first on that postal route. But more than this, the Ephesian church 
was the largest and most prominent of the seven churches to whom Jesus will write. And part of the reason for this is because Ephesus itself was one of the largest and oldest cities in Asia Minor, located on the mouth of the Caister River, three miles from the Aegean Sea, Ephesus was a major harbor city. Caravan routes, caravan routes from cities in the north, the south, and the east converged in Ephesus, making it a leading center of commerce, wealth, culture, and learning. As the capital of the province of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire, boasting a population that fluctuated between 250,000 to 500,000 people, this is the city in which the Church of Ephesus existed. Now, beyond the impressive city in which it was located, the Ephesian church was also important in its own right during the early days of Christianity. You might remember after an initially unsuccessful attempt to visit the province of Asia recorded in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul finally made a brief visit to Ephesus on the return trip of his second missionary journey. Eventually, Paul then returned to Ephesus and ministered there for nearly three years. And after a fruitful but not uneventful time of both corporate and individual sharing of the gospel, Paul departed Ephesus, putting his protege, Timothy, in charge. Timothy was to oversee and guard the continuing growth of the church in Ephesus. Now, tradition holds that eventually John, the transcriber of this revelation of Jesus Christ, John eventually replaced Timothy as the leader of the Ephesian church near somewhere around the end of the first century. And the other six churches to whom Jesus writes in Revelation were founded by the church in Ephesus, and John initially ministered to those churches from Ephesus until he was exiled to the island of Patmos. So it is to this community of faith, living in this sprawling urban city, that Jesus begins his first letter. And he begins by giving them a glowing commendation. Jesus, in fact, commends three specific virtues on the part of the Ephesians. First, they are affirmed for their deeds, their hard work. In other words, the Ephesian church was an active congregation. It was a community of Christians who kept busy, performing regular daily acts of service to those in need. Second, besides being hard workers, Jesus affirms the Ephesian church for their perseverance, particularly for enduring in the face of hardship. Now, living in one of the great cities, one of the great cities devoted to the cult of the Roman emperor, a city that also served as a spiritual hub for the worship of the Greek deity Artemis, otherwise known in Rome as Diana, the mother goddess of Asia, the Ephesian church was dead center in a place where they refused to participate in practice both the civil and local religion of the neighborhood. And even more than this, Christians living in Ephesus also would have, would have, through their preaching, their teaching, and their witness, they would have been encouraging their neighbors and fellow citizens to believe and follow Jesus Christ as the one true God instead. And as a result of both of these actions, what they believed and what they professed, the Ephesians Christians paid a heavy price. They lost customers for any of the goods and services that they sold to make a living. And they also were denied services and goods from others who refused to sell or trade with them. All because the Ephesian Christians were not willing to be patriotic. Because the Ephesian Christians would not give Artemis, Diana, her due. And yet, despite all of, all of this, the physical abuse, the social ostracism, they came with, that came with living out of their faith in Jesus, the Ephesians endured, Jesus commends them. They did not bend or break before the pressure they faced of when in Rome to do as the Romans do. Hard workers enduring 
And thirdly, Jesus affirms their discernment and diligence in defending the faith. Now, apparently what this means is that there were itinerant teachers and philosophers who asserted themselves within the Christian community at Ephesus as self-proclaimed apostles and would-be prophets of Christ. Paul warned about this in Acts. Timothy talks about it in his letters as well. And here, specific reference is made to a group called the Nicolaitans. And we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. We'll consider more about them, actually, when they're mentioned again in Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum. The point, for now, is the Ephesians didn't believe everything they heard. This is the thing that Jesus commends them for. The, the Ephesians didn't accept whatever they were taught at face value. Jesus affirms them for being a community that listened, that gave an honest hearing, but at the same time tested what was being taught against the word of God through praying in the spirit. And whatever did not line up with the content of the word and the guidance of the spirit, the Ephesian Christians, whatever they found to be false, they had no part of. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus' initial evaluation of the Ephesian church here seems pretty darn impressive, right? I mean, actively and busily serving others, continued perseverance in the face of obstacles and afflictions, consistent testing and discernment of any and all information and teaching against the word and spirit of God. It sounds like the Ephesians are doing everything right. I mean, what could possibly be wrong. Jesus, moving from affirmation to concern, focuses on one crucial area where the Ephesians have missed the mark. He writes, you have forsaken the love you had at first. What does this mean? Initially, we might perceive that Jesus is saying the Ephesians are, have lost their love for him, that they're being called out for losing their love for Christ, but this doesn't seem to line up with how Jesus has just previously described and affirmed them. I mean, right? What has he just said? They're vigilant about not giving their heart to other gods. They're concerned about maintaining proper worship of God in Christ. They're working hard to serve others in the name of Jesus, even as they are carefully discerning any teaching or influences that might lead them astray from the truth of the gospel. All of this seems indicative of a love, perhaps not true love, but an attempt at some expression of love for Christ. The point is not that the Ephesians fell out of love with Jesus. That's not what's going on here. This is not a church that once possessed an emotional passion for Christ and then lost it somehow. The love that Jesus invokes here is not an emotion. Instead, the love Jesus invokes here is about action. Notice how Jesus goes on to stress that the Ephesians need to start doing the things they did at first. What the Ephesians apparently have stopped doing is loving one another. What the Ephesians have forsaken is acting out of love towards others. In other words, in all their hard work to do good for others, the Ephesians have lost sight of being good towards others, being kind and compassionate and merciful in their zeal for moral purity, in not worshiping false gods and opposing false teaching. The Ephesians have lost sight of the centrality of love. The Ephesians are unrelenting. They're unrelenting, right, in speaking and representing the truth, but they are doing so. They're representing the truth without love. Endurance in the face of opposition has become for the Ephesians hardness of heart towards one of their enemies rather than a humble heart of forgiveness and mercy. Honest discernment before the rival claims of truth by others has turned the Ephesians to having a bitter judgmental spirit rather than a spirit of charity and peace. 
It cannot be underestimated or understated how crucial we understand what is going on here. You see, the Ephesians more than likely were shocked and perhaps even a little offended by this rebuke from Jesus. Understand this. In their estimation, everything they were doing was out of their love for Christ. But the mistake the Ephesians were making, a common mistake still made within the church today, is failing to recognize our love for God and our love for others, our fellow human beings, are inseparably connected. Jesus previously made this clear long before this vision of Revelation. Jesus made this clear when he summarized the entirety of the law, God's rules for life, as coming down to our absolute love of God in all phases of our being, as expressed through loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. You see, because of our brokenness in our love for God, because of our rejection and rebellion against his love for us, our capacity to love ourselves along with our neighbor also was broken. Our love apart from God is conditional, it's fickle, and it's fluctuating. Our love apart from God is based upon our feelings because the love we seek apart from God is based on our own self-interest. Apart from God, we love conditionally. We love in order to gain. We love in order to feel secure and complete. And we fall in and out of love based on whether or not we're feeling secure, whether or not we are satisfied, whether or not we are gaining something. But the love we need, the love that is true, the love that truly will make us secure and complete, the love where we gain all that we ultimately desire, a sense of identity, of acceptance, of purpose, accountability, protection, of destiny, that love is a love we cannot earn or achieve or woo by ourselves. It's the love that we are given unconditionally, despite our flaws, despite our failures. It's the love we're given unconditionally, despite at times our just plain wrongful behavior. It's the love we are given freely by God who comes down to us in Christ in order to willingly bear the burden of the brokenness that we create and carry, in order to sacrificially face the death we deserve, in order to heal and conquer every obstacle before us in allowing ourselves to be truly loved and to truly love each other. When we receive God's love expressed through Christ, we love differently. We love out of the fullness and assurance of God's love for us. And we can and we should love others then as Jesus loves us. John, in fact, elaborates on this in his first letter to the church, written long before he ever received this revelation from Jesus. Back then, 1 John, John makes it plain. Once we receive the security of God's unconditional love for us, we reflect that same love back to God through loving others unconditionally through loving others by not withholding forgiveness, through loving others by being willing to serve their needs, not after we've taken care of ourselves, but serving others out of the care we acknowledge we receive from God. John pulls no punches in that letter when he basically declares, if we have no love to give to others in the name of Jesus, then the truth is we've never embraced the love that Jesus has for us. And now, here in this letter, this vision, Jesus is repeating the same message. Pay careful attention to the warning Jesus gives the Ephesian church as he speaks of removing their lampstand from its place. Now, this is less of an eschatological threat and more of an inevitable consequence. The symbol of the lampstand was a representation of our role as the church in the world. It's a symbol that goes all the way back when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember? 
He told us as his followers, he told us as the church, he said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We exist as the church to shine, not to reflect our own brilliance or prosperity, but to shine, to radiate the glorious light of Christ's love for the world. When love, the love of Jesus we are given, the love of Christ we are called to share, when love is not the foundation of all we say and do, when love is not the basis of our evangelism, our discipleship, our service, when love is not there, we cease to be the church. We are no longer the body of Christ. There is no lampstand because there is no light. Because there's no light of Jesus without the love of Christ. We can be busy doing lots of good things, even serving others, and yet still not be loving in our motivation and intent. Still not be loving in our expression and practice of the service. We can endure suffering and hardship, but still do so without any love. We can do that by holding grudges, by keeping score, by seeking vengeance. We can exercise discernment and hold fast to the truth, all the while denying the love that we have in Christ through our passing of judgment, through our self-satisfied condemnation of others, through getting our pound of flesh. True love is the first and foundational mark of the church, love for Christ and love for all of God's children. As the Apostle Paul stresses in 1 Corinthians 13, his first letter to the Corinthian church, any act, no matter how well-intentioned or well-performed, any act without love is meaningless and inadequate. It's vain and self-centered. If it is loveless, it is lifeless. Work without the love of Christ behind it is awful. Work without the love of Christ behind it leads to burnout. Endurance without the love of Christ driving it, endurance without the love of Christ is exhausting. It leads to bitterness. Speaking the truth without the love of Christ, speaking the truth without the love of Christ is both hypocritical and hurtful. It's not life-giving, it's actually life-taking. Without the love of the Father that is ours, thanks to Jesus, we become the, like the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son. The son who argues he's done his duty, but has no love for his brother. The son who claims to be owed everything, while at the same time refusing to accept what he has been given and all that he can possess thanks to his father if only he receives it and shares it in love. Much like in the story of that parable, Jesus in this letter begins his prescription for the problem in Ephesus with a call to come home. Consider how far you have fallen, Jesus says. And this is not a rebuke, but it's a prompt. It's a prompt for the Ephesians to remember. Remember where they've been, where their lives were before Jesus. Remember how far they've come, all they've received from Christ, how they've grown and matured in their faith when they followed him, how when they loved others like Jesus loved them, they grew. And in our relationship with Jesus, we have to ask, do we ever consider? Do we ever ask ourselves, what would our lives be like without him? Dare we even imagine what our lives would look like if God didn't love us in Christ? Ponder for a moment. Ponder for a moment. If Jesus hadn't died for us, if Jesus hadn't risen from the grave, if Jesus hadn't given us his spirit, where would we be right now? Where would we be going? 
When we actually stop and reflect on the limitless heights of eternal glory we have been given that are ours today thanks to Christ, we may find ourselves wondering why we are lowering ourselves, why we are settling for less, why we are cheapening grace, why we are squandering the opportunity before us each day to love and be loved so well, so perfectly, so unconditionally. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I believe Jesus gave us the sacrament of Holy Communion. That's why every Sunday we come to the table that Christ sets before us. The bread broken for us, the blood spilled for us. It's a ritual. It's a discipline, but it's not a ritual or discipline only of remembrance. It's a discipline, it's a ritual of being reoriented, recentered to the love that Jesus offers us, to the caliber of love Jesus calls us to share with each other. Jesus continues in his prescription to the Ephesians by calling them, calling us, not only to reorientation, but to repentance. Jesus calls us to change direction, to turn around and stop going the wrong way, the way that is apart from him. Now, Jesus, in calling us to repent, doesn't calling for us to wallow in guilt and shame. Jesus isn't calling for us to continually shed tears, to repeatedly beat ourselves up or just perpetually feel bad. Jesus is calling us to change direction, to be lifted up, to be raised up, to be resurrected like Lazarus, and to once again live out of his love rather than to remain trapped behind the cold darkness of simply dying for the sake of duty. When we realize how far we've fallen, we can either bemoan where we are and simply adjust to where we find ourselves, settling for less, wistfully recalling the good old days, what once was but can never be. But if we do that, if we remain on the ground, we're rejecting the hand that Jesus offers us, the love. Because the repentance the gospel demands is not that we have to pick ourselves up to find our way to God. The good news is that God in Christ comes to us, finds us and picks us up when we've fallen and can't help ourselves. Repentance begins by taking the hand of Jesus and by the grace of God getting up and walking in a new direction. The final instruction Jesus gives in his prescription to the Ephesians is this, do the things you did at first. Now Jesus, once again, is not telling us to fix or change ourselves, we can't. When change is up to us, our tendency is to wait, right? When change is up to us, our tendency is to wait until we feel ready to change, until we believe we're capable of change. When change is up to us, solely about our will and our effort, change will start and it'll stutter and it'll stop and it'll start and it'll stutter and it'll stop until we convince ourselves we just can't change. Jesus is beckoning the Ephesians and us to be changed, to yield and submit to being healed, to continually being changed, not to change themselves, but to be changed, to be transformed by him. When Jesus calls us to do the things we did at first, ultimately what he's talking about, what it always comes back to is one thing, and it's the same one thing that Jesus once communicated to Peter in front of John, long before the warmth of an early morning fire on the beach, before a breakfast of some broiled fish, and seeking to lift Peter back up. Do you remember Peter after having rejected Christ three times, helping him to repent, to turn around, to go back to the things that Peter was doing at first? Jesus looked at Peter in that moment and asked three times, do you love me? And three times, you recall, Peter declared his love for Jesus. And each time, Jesus directed Peter in terms of the one thing to do, to convey that love he professed for Jesus in terms of feeding 
taking care of my sheep. In professing our love for Jesus, we're called to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is the first thing, the one thing, the only thing we need to do. Because if we follow Jesus, then we will love others like Jesus. We will do what Christ models. We will do what Christ directs. We will do what Christ empowers us to do. Feed and care for his sheep. Compassionately, justly, and humbly serve each other. Now, the way of Christ, you know, it can become to us something to be studied rather than a trajectory to follow. The way of Christ can become something we study rather than the only way to live, rather than a direction to which we point and teach others about. The truth of Christ can become to us something we fiercely defend, even as we violate the essence of the truth of Christ by thoughtlessly and carelessly wounding or worse, killing another person. The life of Christ, the Christian life, life in the church can become all duty and no delight can be just be about going through the motions, right? Adopting the rituals, we all know what they are, adhering to the superstition of a religion, rather than experiencing, abiding, and enjoying Jesus as a person. A person who loves us like no one else can. A person who seeks to love through us in a manner we never could love on our own, in a way we never could love on our own. The church in Ephesus began to focus on the struggles of this life, this world, rather than staying centered on Jesus. The church at Ephesus focused on what they thought they should confront, on what they needed to defend, rather than just simply following Christ. And slowly, the duty of religious actions began to replace the love of Jesus. Gradually, gatekeeping and wall building eclipsed the love of Christ. And eventually, all their hard work, all the good they might have been doing, amounted to nothing because the love of Christ was no longer behind any of their efforts. The question for me that this letter to the Ephesians causes me to ask is, where is the love? Where is the love of Christ in the church these days? Where is our love for Jesus being reflected in our love towards each other? Nothing is more tragic, nothing is more heartbreaking, nothing is frankly more life-sucking than a house divided, a family at odds with each other. It's not attractive. It's not edifying, and yet that's what much of the church looks like today. And I'm not talking about agreeing to disagree. Living out of the love that Jesus has for us, there is more than enough room for diversity within the body of Christ. There's more than enough room for us to agree to disagree. What I'm talking about is being disagreeable in our disagreements. The global pandemic is COVID, but the global pandemic is increasingly also becoming polarization. What's infecting this country, but not only our broader world, is this division. Loving each other like Jesus loves us does not give us any excuse or justification for going to war with our own kin. Going to war over politics, age, gender, nationality, ethnicity, religion, you name it. Loving each other like Jesus loves us demands that we refuse to take up arms to divide and conquer each other, but instead unreservedly commit to being peacemakers, to listen, to learn, to seek common ground, not only with our brothers and sisters in the faith, but with our fellow human beings who have been fearfully and wonderfully created in the image of God just like us. Now, while there's such a thing as setting appropriate, healthy boundaries in relationships, it's entirely something else to cancel or cut ourselves off from each other. Loving each other like Jesus loves us does not allow us any margin, any basis for speaking and acting like that other person, whoever they are, is dead to you. 
doesn't exist, isn't worth acknowledging. Loving each other like Jesus loves us requires us not to punish or condemn, not to seek revenge or to kill, but instead to forgive even if we can't forget to allow time and space for reconciliation, the possibility to promote rather than to get in the way of grace and healing. The grace and healing we all need. The grace and healing that is all ours, thanks to Christ. To love each other like Jesus loves us means our conversations and our actions, they need to move away from a continual dichotomy of either or, or us versus them, that perspective, and need to move toward the more awkward, the more laborious, but ultimately worthwhile view of a continuum or spectrum of points of view. Graciousness and civility will be required in the midst of some serious disagreements and the wounds of the past. But loving each other like Jesus loves us is realizing Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners, that Jesus continues to love us while we remain in perfect works in progress, that Jesus will keep loving us even as we continue to stumble and fall again and again on our way to being made perfect by the grace of God. And therefore, we can and we must go and do likewise. Love others like that, forgivingly, patiently, and unconditionally, because loving each other like Jesus loves us is accepting that what we believe matters. But whatever we believe doesn't matter more than embodying the love of God in our relationships with each other. Loving each other like Jesus loves us is understanding that we will stand before the Lord less on the basis of our doctrine, what we profess to believe, and more on the character of our love toward others, our stewardship of the grace we received from Jesus. Jesus closes this letter to the Ephesians with a promise for them, a promise for us all. He writes, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. In other words, all the love and peace, the shalom, originally lost to humanity in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning because of our rebellion against God, what's then separated us from each other, will become ours once again. The reward of loving others like Jesus loves us is the reward of more love. The love that overcomes all things, the love that always protects, that always trusts, that always hopes, that always perseveres and never fails, the love that makes us together more than conquerors, the love that death itself cannot hold, the reward of loving others like Jesus loves us is an ever-deepening and widening experience of the love that God has for us, of knowing less in part as we come to know fully, even as we are fully known. Where is the love? It's where it's always been. Freely available to us, given to us, endowed to us, waiting to be shared by us. It is the love that we have, the perfect, pure, everlasting, unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Let's not just receive that love. Let us receive that love and share it with each other. Because this is the word of the Lord. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.